This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good evening, GYC. Oh, let's try that again. Good evening, GYC. Thank you so much for that beautiful, special music. Before I forget, I'll try to remind you later, after we pray for the evening devotional and we close, programming has asked me to ask you to remain in your seats. There is another part to the program after the evening devotional. I'd like to invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray this evening. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity that we have in, to come into your presence. We recognize tonight that your strength is perfect when our strength is gone. As we talk about revolution, as we talk about how you moved in the book of Acts, how priorities were shifted in the hearts of your people, we pray that you would speak to us. We pray that Christ would be uplifted, that Jesus would be seen. Cover us with your robe of righteousness here tonight. May our hearts be drawn closer and closer to you. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This evening, I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalms chapter 90, verses 10 through 12. The book of Psalms, chapter 90, verses 10 through 12. Revolutions, even though they are corporate events always begin with individual change. God always changes the world by changing me. Revolutions, even though they are mass scale, always begin with an individual conversion. A conversion is a reorganization of the thoughts and priorities of the hearts. It's a radical experience, and as Pastor Wes Peppers mentioned this morning, it begins the process with repentance. The book of Acts is no exception, and this evening I'd like for us to reflect on some scriptures that show us that there are certain times in our human experience when even unconverted individuals recognize heaven's values. The Bible tells us what is important, what we should live for, but there are certain innate experiences that help us to recognize what is ultimately important in life. In Psalms 90 verses 10 through 12, it's a reflection by the psalmist and he says, The days of our lives are 70 years. And if by reason of strength they are 80 years, 
Yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger, for as in the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of understanding. The Bible tells us that life is short. Life is finite. We do not live forever. And he says here, even back in the days of the psalmist, he says they are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years. The Bible is telling us that it is good for us to recognize our mortality, that we do not live forever. So the psalmist goes on and says, So teach us to number our days. We need to count, to calculate, to recognize that life is short, and this helps us to gain a heart of understanding. And so this morning, with your permission, I'd like to have us meditate for a little bit about the brevity of life. It says to number our days, so I want to take this literally. Let's say that you live to 70, and I pray that you live longer if the Lord doesn't come, amen? But just for the sake of illustration, let's use the psalmist's example and say you live to 70 years of age. That comes to, if you multiply 365 by 70, 25,550 days. If you are 20 years of age, you have 18,250 days left. If you are 35 and you paid the penalty for being over 35, (laughs) you have 12,775 days left. If you are 50, 7,300 days. James says in James chapter 4, verse 14, Whereas you know not what shall be tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Life is short. Life is finite. I remember my grandmother telling me in one of those moments that I had that I treasure, she was sitting down with me at the table in my home, and she said, David, I want to tell you a reflection of my life. She told me how she escaped from North Korea, went to Japan as a missionary, came to America, worked her fingers to the bone to provide an education for her family. Finally, she said she got to the point in her life where she could breathe a sigh of relief, and then she looked in the mirror, and she was over 70 years of age. And she said, life is short. Life is finite. We do not live forever. And it's in this moment that the Bible tells us, reflecting upon our own mortality, that it shows us something about values. It shows us something about priorities. I found another statistic. It said for the average American who leaves college at 22 and lives to be 70, so 
Average college student graduates 22. You live to be 70. It's 48 years from 22 to 70. The adult lifespan can be broken down into a few key activities. You'll spend 16 years working. 16 years, if you were to compress that time, that's 16 years nonstop without taking breaks for eating, sleeping, or vacationing. You'll spend 15 years sleeping. Some of us more than others. 16 years working, 15 years sleeping. The next biggest drain on your time, they say on average, it's media. They said you could spend up to eight years watching television on the internet or other sources. Four years eating. (laughs) Two years commuting for the average American. And when you subtract all these things, 16 years working, 15 years sleeping, four years eating, eight years in media, two years commuting, you have less than four years to do what you actually like. Time with a spouse or loved one, time with the children and grandchildren, outings and vacations, it comes down to one-twelfth of your life. A maximum of five minutes every hour. And tragically, most of that time will be postponed to a period called retirement, when many people no longer enjoy the health needed to live life to the fullest. Life is short. James 4.14 says, For what is your life? It is a vapor that lives and appears for a time and vanishes away. Psalms 39 verse 5 says, Indeed, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my age is as nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best state is but a vapor. Psalms 103, 15 and 16, For as a man his days are like grass, As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For as the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and it remembers it no more. Billy Graham, that American evangelist, said, the greatest surprise to me is the brevity of life. Life is short, so the obvious question is, how should I spend it? If you only have a few moments to actually do, to actually be, to actually prioritize what should I do? How should I spend my life? How should I spend my time? Ecclesiastes 7 verse 2, that great experiential chapter from the wisest man that ever lived, in a personal reflection upon life, says these words, Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 2, He says, better to go to the house of what? He says, better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart.
Solomon is saying that it's better to go to a funeral than to a wedding. If I had my choice, I would rather go to a wedding. Solomon is not saying that we should go to funerals because he's a melancholy individual. He is saying that funerals, places of mourning, help the living to recognize their mortality. And it's in this event that priorities and values are recognized. Several years ago, I had the privilege of going to Africa on a mission trip. And it was an incredible experience. I'd never been to Africa before. I've since gone a few more times. And I noticed immediately that economic poverty does not equate spiritual lethargy. People would stop me in the jungle and say, do you have any literature? In America, you can't give it away. And it was an experience where I saw souls come to Christ. We had a wonderful time. There was an element of discomfort, though, and it seems like even in the States, whenever I'm in a place that is more tropical, I don't know if it's because I'm Asian or because of my blood, but it seems like I can be in a place and no one else is getting bit by mosquitoes, but they're just swarming all around me. And this was the case. I had multiple welts all over my body, but I said, hey, this is for missions. This is for the Lord. I will suffer for him. (laughs) And I came back to the States. It was around December. Went to my parents' home. It's around Christmas break. And I started getting flu-like symptoms. There was a flu going around. And this was a little bit different. I would wake up in the middle of the night, chills, have to change all my clothes and a lot of other things happening, which I won't go into detail. It was absolute misery, and one day, two days, three days, four days, five days, six days go by, and finally in the middle of the night, I feel this incredible impression, David, you need to go to the hospital. This is not normal. I'm a typical male. I do not like hospitals. I can't remember the last time I've gone to the doctor for a checkup. My wife keeps reminding me I should go. And that night, I crawled upstairs. I said, Mom, Dad, something's wrong. We need to go to the hospital. They bundled me up, took me off to the hospital. The doctor on call that night had been to Africa. He took one look at me, and he said, David... I don't even need to see the blood test. You're six days into this. I think you have malaria. He educated me very quickly about what malaria was. A mosquito comes and bites you, and he takes your blood but leaves a gift. (laughs) He leaves, leaves a parasite. And that parasite incubates in your liver and then in a few days or a few weeks it it comes out and this parasite goes into your red blood cell, starts multiplying, and then when it reaches a certain capacity, it bursts. Then they go out to another red blood cell and and it keeps going. That's why you get fever and flu-like symptoms. And 
The type of malaria I had, I found out later, was called falciparum. And they say that you have up to seven days to treat it. I was on day six, and they said even if you catch it at day six or seven, you get liver failure, kidney failure, you could be on dialysis for the rest of your life, and you could die. And I'm sitting there in that hospital bed, sweat pouring down my face, my parents looking at me, and I said, look, this is something you read out of Reader's Digest. I said, this is, always happens to someone else, not me. And I recognized that night a recognition on what I thought was my deathbed. Knowing that I might not make it through the night, I want to tell you that my priorities crystallized. It's an element of human experience. I recognized what was ultimately important. And it came down to two things, or two individuals, or two entities. God, if I don't make it through the night, do I have a relationship with Him? And the other one was people. Everything else paled into insignificance. There was no fog, there was ultimate clarity. Better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Recognizing our mortality is a healthy endeavor. I did youth ministry for a few years. And as I would talk to these academy kids and high school kids, I would ask them, let's say that you're on a plane, transatlantic flight, and the pilot comes over the intercom. And he says, we are having some technical difficulties. This is not turbulence. And for whatever reason, he tells you that we're going to crash in the Atlantic Ocean and you have five minutes before impact. And the pilot says, use those five minutes well. And I ask these teenagers, what would you do for the last five minutes of your life? And I said, how many of you would play video games for the last five minutes of your life? Not a single hand went up. I said, how many of you ladies would go off to the bathroom and check your hair because you want to die pretty? <laughs> Not a single hand went up. I said, how many of you would watch television or be on the internet? Not a single hand went up. And then I asked them, how many of you would pray? Every single hand went up. And I said, how many of you would call your parents? Every single 
hand went up and I said, isn't it ironic that the two people you want least in your life right now when you're about to die are the two people that you want most in your life? Better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting for the living will take it to heart. I was listening on the radio. It was the 10th anniversary of September 11. And I don't know how many of you have ever heard StoryCorps. It's an audio description of people testifying about certain events. And on the 10th anniversary of September 11, they had different individuals that would come on that had lost loved ones in that terrible event. And there was one widow that was on the radio. Her testimony just broke my heart. She says that her husband worked on Tower One. She heard the news that one of the towers had been hit and then she received a chilling phone call. It, were, it was her husband. And her husband is on the phone and he says, I'm above the explosion. I've checked every exit and I don't think I'm going to make it. And she tells a story about how for half an hour they're on the phone. What would you do with that last half hour with your spouse? And she, she's talking and they're sharing experiences and finally they get to the place where they have nothing more they could say and all they're saying is, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And then there's the crash and silence and she says she was sitting there with the phone on her heart weeping and she said she did not want to go to bed that night. Because as long as she stayed awake, she believed that it was the day that she had spent with her husband. Instinctively, people that knew that were perishing knew what was important and knew who to call. People. Relationships. If we discovered we only had five minutes left to say all that we ever wanted to say, Every cell phone would be occupied by people calling other people to stammer, I love you. Better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Blaise Pascal says this, I've learned to define life backwards and live it forwards. I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. The corporate revolution in the book of Acts was made and represented by individuals that had one heartbeat One priority, Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. 
Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessions of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. The energies, time, and resources in the book of Acts was sacrificed for the salvation of souls. The book of Acts represents a radical paradigm shift in the minds of the disciples where every resource was invested in what heaven values most, souls in the kingdom. It was a paradigm shift of priorities where God and the worth of souls was supremely realized. There was a man that had a dream. And in this dream, he was hearing voices. One voice in particular told him to go down this path and was giving him directions around the path. Go left, go right, and finally the voice said, stop. He stopped and the voice said, I want you to pick up these rocks and place them in your pocket. So he did that. He placed the rocks in his pocket and then the voice told him, go back out the path, go home, don't look at the rocks until you get home and when you look at the rocks, you will be extremely elated and at the same time, you'll be extremely sad. He thought that was strange to experience two conflicting emotions but he followed that instruction and went out of the path, came back home and reached into his pocket to pick out the rocks And he looked at them in the light, and they were not rocks, they were diamonds. And then he understood the meaning of the words, you'll be extremely happy, yet you'll be extremely sad, because he was happy. Yes, because he had the diamonds, but if he recognized the value of the rocks, he would have taken more. I believe that We won't recognize the value of a soul until we stand on the sea of glass in heaven. And it's my prayer here tonight that none of us, when we get to heaven, will have any regrets as to what God would have us to have done here on earth while we had the opportunity. I think of Jesus in Luke chapter 15 He's portraying to the disciples and to the people how heaven looks at individuals. He's hanging around with individuals that the Pharisees say he should not be around, and suddenly the Pharisees come up to him and say, why are you hanging around with these people? And Jesus says to them, I want to tell you a story. It was actually one story, but it's three stories combined to portray a point. It's the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. 
In all three stories, there is something that is lost. Illustrating three lost conditions. The sheep doesn't know he's lost, doesn't know the way back home. The coin doesn't know he's lost. The prodigal son knows he's lost, knows his way back home. At the end of each parable, there is a celebration that takes place. The lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. And it helped me to recognize that when I knelt down in the hills of Pennsylvania and gave my heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, that heaven, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the angels, they stopped. There was a moment of silence and then celebration. And there was a place reserved in heaven for me just in that moment. Who can estimate the value of a soul in the eyes of God? I like to read this statement from Ellen White. Review and Herald, March 25, 1880. Here is a work for every one of us to do. Never did I see and sense the value of souls as I do at the present time. How can we realize the, important, the importance of the work of salvation? In comparison with the value of a soul, everything else sinks into insignificance. This world and its treasures, this life and its happiness are of little consequence when we compare them with the joy of even one soul eternally saved. Until we have a clear and distinct ideas of what that soul will enjoy when saved in the kingdom of glory, until we can fully comprehend the value of that life which measures with the life of God, until we can fully realize the riches of that reward which is laid up for those who overcome and gain the victory, we cannot know the inestimable value of a soul. If I had a thousand lives, I would devote them all to the service of the Lord. Let us consider, dear friends, what joy unspeakable will fill our hearts in the day of God if, as we gather around the great white throne, we shall see souls saved through our instrumentality with the crown of immortal glory upon their brows. How shall we feel as we look upon that company and see one soul saved through our agency who has saved others and still others? A large assembly brought into the haven of rest as the result of our labors, there to lay their crowns at the feet of Jesus and to praise him with immortal tongues throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. The book of Acts represents a radical transformation in human nature, recognizing what heaven values most is people.
What heaven values most is souls. And heaven forbid that when we get to heaven, that we will live a moment of regret, recognizing on that side of eternity what is ultimately valuable. I was at a pastor's retreat, and one of the pastors stood up and told us an experience that his wife had. And he said that his wife was praying to the Lord. She has a powerful prayer ministry. And she was praying, Lord Jesus, please show me your heart. I want to see your heart. She fell asleep and in her sleep she had a dream. It was after the millennium. The new Jerusalem had come down from heaven. Praise the Lord, she was inside the city. And she said the walls were of transparent gold. She could see through them, and on the horizon she could see a shadow that filled the entire landscape, and the shadow approached the city. And she said that she could see that it was not a shadow, but it was people. They got closer and closer to the city, and she started to see faces. There was one face that broke her heart. It was her son. Her son saw the mother through the walls. And in the dream, the son walks up to the walls of the New Jerusalem, places his hands on the walls. She places her hands on the wall. And she could not hear through the wall, but she could hear or read his lips. And he's, say, and he's saying, Mom, let me in. Please let me in. And instinctively from the mother's heart, she turned to try to let her son in, and she recognized that she couldn't. And in that moment, she heard the voice, Now is the time. And she woke up. And it was as if the Spirit of God was telling her, Now you know my heart. Friends, I pray this evening that God would give us a love for souls for whom Christ died. Amen. I want to say, Lord Jesus, help me to love people like you love people, because I don't. Give me a love for souls for whom Christ died so that when I stand in that new Jerusalem, I can say by the grace of God that I have done everything possible to influence as many people for the kingdom. And tonight I want to make a very simple appeal. This is what moved the revolution in the book of Acts. They valued what heaven valued. 
They invested in what heaven valued. They gave up everything for the salvation of souls. And tonight, I want to pray in my heart, David, asking the Lord Jesus, give me a love for people that you shed your blood upon Calvary for. Is that your desire here tonight? It's something that we cannot manufacture. It's not something that we can try to conjure up in our own nature. It is a divine love for souls for whom Christ died. Let the revolution begin and let it begin with me. When we love the world as Christ loved the world, then his mission for us is accomplished. Is, it, is that your desire here tonight? Yes, Lord, help me to love people like you love people. Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray tonight that you would help us to love people like you love people. We pray tonight that you would help us to see people the way that you see people. That heaven's values would become our values. That when we stand on the sea of glass with you, that you would help us to recognize by the grace of God, that we have done everything possible to lead people into the kingdom. May we not live a moment of regret. Help us to recognize from your perspective what is ultimately important. For we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.